Scale models can be very helpful in preparing people for the mission ahead. In the 90s classic Apollo 13, we watch the crew train on docking with the lunar module again and again in their scale model. They needed to be ready for trouble. In the 1970s, in the real world, the Swiss army stopped making knives for a minute and they decided that they wanted to build tank simulators in order to train new drivers. After all, real tanks are big and expensive to build, fuel, and maintain. But it was the 70s, so you couldn't just generate a virtual world in Unreal Engine and let people game their way through the system. So instead, they built an extensive miniature landscape that you can visit in a Swiss uh, uh, military museum if you're ever near Zurich. And they connected this little miniature, it looks like a Thomas the Train world, and they connected a little miniature camera that would drive through the city to real-world controls in a model that thousands of tankers trained on. And they would do so without having to burn countless gallons of fuel or accidentally crunch over real buildings and cars. As the Joseph saga comes to a crescendo here in Genesis 45 we are able as readers to look at essentially a scale model of our own spiritual lives with the Lord. We have been called before a throne, offered forgiveness, commanded to do certain things, and then to stay in close relationship with this all-powerful sovereign whose goal is to rescue us. And he has sent us out to spread the word of his invitation to others. This life is not always easy, God's providential work in our lives requires that we walk by faith and trust Him and and go the way that He's asked us to go according to the means that He's given us to do it. He asks that we live in humility, and sometimes it means we will face the consequences of our previous mistakes. But no matter the difficulties or our missteps along the way, the destination is worth the pilgrimage. Our sovereign king is worth trusting, and he has our best in mind. So let's take a look at this scale model of God's generosity and guidance, beginning in verse 16. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus was traveling through the Gentile towns of Tyre and Sidon. And after healing a man who was deaf and mute, the people declared, he does everything well. Speaking of Christ, of course. Joseph had that kind of effect on the Egyptians around him and really throughout the whole nation. Through Joseph, God had saved their nation and their surrounding nations as well. And we see here that people at sort of every level had affectionate appreciation for what he had done. Joseph wasn't just on the good side of the elites, right? It wasn't just Pharaoh who was happy to have Joseph around. We see that the servant class also were just as happy to have Joseph around. They were all pleased to hear that his brothers had come to town. And so he lived as a blessing to all the people around them, whether they were important and powerful or unimportant and servants. We saw earlier in his life, he was a blessing to prisoners, even those who uh, sort of mistreated him and, and ignored him and forgot about him. He was a blessing to those around him. Kenneth Matthews points out that in this verse, the Egyptians used Joseph's Hebrew name, not the fancy Egyptian name he had been given a few years back, Zaphnath Paniah. I would go by Joseph too. 
But in this regard, Joseph was like Daniel in that he remained set apart in his godliness, in his godly culture, even though he was immersed in uh, the Egyptian kingdom. But that didn't mean that he couldn't have successful relationships with unbelievers. You look at the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel opens up with a similar situation where Daniel is taken, whether he wanted to be or not, into Babylon. They say, okay, you've got a new life. You've got a new name. You're going to be educated. You've got a new language. You have a new purpose, all these things. But throughout the book, we see he remains Daniel. He doesn't become Babylonianized. He remains godly. He remains Hebrew in his culture. And there's a little glimmer here of, of, of the same thing happening with Joseph. Christ does not conform to a pagan culture. He just doesn't. And therefore, as Christians, as uh, uh, image bearers of God who are to go out in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ with the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ, we also are not to conform to the pagan culture around us. Christ always remains apart, and he calls us to be set apart and to be godly, whether you're in Egypt, whether you're in Canaan, whether you're in Babylon, whether you're in 21st century America. But separation, in this sense, is not the same as segregation, where we are completely cut off from the pagan world around us. Paul said, yeah, you can't do that. There's no way for you to actually separate yourself from the unbelieving world. And so what we find in the Bible is that as Christians, we can be both holy and winsome to a lost and dying world. In fact, we must be both of those things. That's the job. And Daniel and Joseph are great examples of that tension and how it is possible even in the most tense version of that tension. There's no more tense version of trying to live a godly life in a pagan culture than Daniel in Babylon or Joseph in Egypt. And we see that it is possible. And we see that as individuals, they offered help to the pagans around them, godly help, while remaining holy and unconformed to the wickedness of the culture. Verse 17 continues, Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals, go back to the land of Canaan, get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can eat from the richness of the land. So we see the king, Pharaoh, spoke through Joseph. Bruce Waltke points out that the brothers needed someone to interpret the words of the king and they needed someone who would act as an intermediary for them. And this is what Christ does. He is the word who became flesh, dwelt among us, became our substitute, and now ever lives to make intercession for us. And what's great here is that Joseph didn't have to convince Pharaoh to welcome or invite his brothers down to Egypt. Remember, in the last passage, if you were here, Joseph had already said, hey, I want you to come and live with me. It's going to be great. And now Pharaoh is is giving them the invitation too. But there's no scene where Pharaoh and Joseph had to have a meeting to talk it over and had to negotiate where they would live or anything like that. Pharaoh gives the invitation, as far as the text is concerned, unprompted for for Joseph's family to come and be blessed, just like Joseph did in the last passage. And if we're looking at this from a spiritual perspective, and Joseph is sort of in the, in the scale model place of Jesus Christ, well, in this sense, Pharaoh would serve in the scale model place of God the Father. And what we're look, learning here is that God the Father is not some cosmic curmudgeon 
who's ready to smash the petulant humans who annoy him so much. And sometimes God the Father gets that rap. Uh, from an unbelieving world or, or in, in different religious systems. But what we learn throughout the Bible is that he and the Son and the Spirit are one. One in nature, one in character, one in desire to save, one in their desire to reach out to a lost world and to rescue and to help. Together they extend love and mercy and generosity and welcome to anyone who's willing to receive those things. There's a lovely phrase there that speaks to us of the Father's heart and his nature towards us. Pharaoh said, return to me. That's such a great distinction. He didn't say, go to get your family and then return to Egypt. He said, no, I want you to return to me. I want to embrace you. I want to bring you in. You're you're part of what's happening here now. And that's the Lord's desire. Yes, he has plans for our lives and intentions for things he would like us to do. And he has provision for our circumstances, all of those sorts of nuts and bolts things. Yes, he does. But more importantly, what he desires most of all is that our heart would commune with his heart, that we would embrace him and that we would uh, give our affections to him and connect our, our thoughts and our hearts and our devotion to him. That's really what he wants. That's what he's wanted all along. That's why he made a garden for Adam and Eve so that they could just live together and be together and that they could interact with one another. Just as all of this rescue happened through Joseph and only Joseph, so too spiritual rescue happens only through Jesus Christ. There's no other brother that the 11 could turn to for help, right? If not for Joseph, they all starve, they all die, they all uh, uh, receive the, the judgment that they deserve for the ways that they had lived in the past. There's no other brother. There's no other place they could have gone. No other rescue. For the nation of Egypt and for the nations around Egypt, there was no other deliverer who could have saved them from the famine. There was one guy provided by God, by the grace of God, who brought rescue and brought reconciliation and brought a future to the nations and to anyone who would come to receive it and specifically to the family of faith here. There's only one provided by God, just one way that, um, that human beings can be saved, and that's Christ Jesus, the God-man who came and accomplished salvation uh, by his own power. Pharaoh's offer continues in verse 19. You are also commanded to tell them, to do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your descendants and your wives. Bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. At the start of this story, the brothers simply hoped, what do they want to get? At the beginning of all of this stuff, what were the brothers hoping to get? A few bags of grain, right? That's what they wanted so that they wouldn't starve to death. And, and Jacob had even said, hey, go get some grain so that we'll live and not die. All that, the best that they had hoped for, the best they had planned for themselves, the best that they could buy for themselves were a few bags of grain. But now what's the offer? What are they walking away with? Way more than a sack of barley, right? They, we're talking about all kinds of provision and protection and security and reconciliation and forgiveness and enjoyment and honor and freedom, way more than they could have ever asked or imagined. The best Egypt had to offer, not just for these 11 guys, but for all of their families. Did you notice Pharaoh didn't bother to take a head count before he made the offer? 
He didn't say, hey, I've got tickets for 25 people. First 25 people across the border, they get the good stuff. The rest, we're going to have to figure something out. Not at all. He said, bring them all. I don't care how many there are, all your families. I don't even know how many there are. Bring them all. It doesn't matter. I'm writing you a blank check. That's a picture of what God does for human beings. Bring them all. Who wants to come? Who's willing to to step into my kingdom and receive all the things I want to give them? I'm going to write you a blank spiritual check in a sense. I'm going to give you way more than you could ever ask or imagine. You were hoping for bags of barley, and I'm going to give you a place in my kingdom. But notice that behind this generous invitation, there was insistence. Pharaoh commanded them multiple times to do this. Just as the Lord commands us, to do things, and he commands us to be saved. In the book of Ezekiel, the Lord says this, turn and live, right? I am commanding you to be saved. He will not force us to be saved, but he does command people to be saved. They would only get the blessing if they obeyed. And this would be a very plain teaching that Moses would later give the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. He would say, listen, if you want the fantastic blessings that God wants to give you, the fantastic blessings that he's offering for you and your families and this nation, then you must follow his commands. Of course, as we see here and throughout the Bible, there's no reason to not obey, right? If the, the brothers had gotten together and said, hang on, let's talk it over. So we can leave and starve, or we can obey the king and uh, receive all of this and more, the best of the land for the rest of our lives. Yeah, there's no reason to not obey, but it was still a choice they would have to make. They would have to walk the road. They would have to choose to believe. They would have to trust the king. They would have to let go of the authority they had over their own lives and say, okay, instead we're going to allow this sovereign to dictate what he wants us to do, and we will do it. Pharaoh made it possible for all of them to get to Egypt, not just the strong, not just the experienced, not just the young. The wagons provided meant that the the very old, the sick, the weak, the little babies, they all could make the trip. No one needed to miss out. Anybody could come who was willing. At the same time, we see Pharaoh encouraged these guys to travel light. He said, don't be concerned about your belongings. He didn't want them to get back home to Canaan, sort of look all around at all the stuff that they had accumulated in their tents, much of it they had shamefully stolen from Shechem, we recall, and then decide, you know what, it is going to be such a hassle to pack this stuff up and move. Let's just stay. I don't know if there's many things worse in regular life, regular life, than moving. When we moved, I like six or about six years ago, uh, I remember the kids were really little and, and after we moved, we got in, they said, well, when are we going to move again? I said, we're never moving again. doesn't matter what's happening. We're never moving again. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if the, the house caves in, tree falls on it, everything. We're, we're just not moving because it's the worst, right? And so Pharaoh was saying, hey, don't get back home and say, man, do you know how hard it's going to be to move all of these sheep and cattle? Do you know how hard it's going to be to pack all of this up and to actually... Hey, you parents of young kids, you know how hard it is to get your kids in the car to get to Target. And you have a car, and you have a diaper bag, and you have all this stuff, and you don't have to drive donkeys and, and goats and sheep to Target to get there, right? And so, so this is a really real thing. 
that they would get all these hundreds of miles away from the presence of the king and then say, again, we've already gone to Egypt twice. It's kind of a hassle and now it's gonna be a really big hassle. And Pharaoh says, man, travel light. Don't, Don't be concerned about your belongings. Another way of translating the phrase actually is regret not your belongings, one scholar says. Don't regret what you might be leaving behind. Because what the king was offering far outmatched whatever they had. And what he's talking about is their stuff. He's not talking about their herds or their flocks. Those they would bring with them because we're going to see later that Joseph's going to say, hey, tell them that you're shepherds because that's going to help us know where you should live. He says, don't look around at the stuff hanging on your tent. Uh, Don't look around at the stuff that you've got in boxes under your bedroll. Just don't, don't look around at that stuff and then think, I'm not gonna do what the king offered to me because it's too much of a hassle. Regret not your belongings. In our own lives, God has told us to not be wrapped up in our earthly belongings. Nothing wrong with earthly belongings if they don't have a hold of your heart. There's a lot of awesome things that we're able to enjoy in this world, but we are not to be wrapped up and bound by our earthly belongings. We have to choose in our hearts who we're going to serve. We can't serve both God and material wealth. The Bible calls it mammon. You can't, and we have to make a choice. But the Lord reveals that he has much, much better plan for us than the world can offer to us. And so don't trade the best of heaven for the odds and ends of Hanford. That's the idea. And that's a choice that we have to make. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh had commanded. He gave them provisions for the journey. Pharaoh and Joseph are so detail-oriented. It's great, though they've thought, uh, sorry, they've thought about the trip there and the trip back. They considered the old and the weak and the little ones. They have everything picked out, set aside, made ready for this family to come and enjoy the rest, uh, you know, in the midst uh, of the world's famine, right? So Pharaoh didn't say, well, we'll get here and we'll figure it out. Or if you guys can kind of scratch out a spot in Egypt, you know, that'll be fine. He says, man, I've got it all planned. I've got the spot planned. I've got the stuff planned. I've got provisions planned. I've got all of this in mind for you. You just have to come and receive it. And while these men and their families would experience individual salvation, of course, we also see that they were living and moving as a unit. We saw this a little bit last time too. They're they're a group together. They're a family of faith. The United Sons of Israel is who they are right now. Not a nation yet. That's gonna come in the book of Exodus. But, but they're moving together as a group. They would take the walk together with a common purpose, sharing the joys, sharing the experiences, sharing the responsibilities of the journey. There would be a lot of unknowns along the road. Wheels might fall off, donkeys might go lame, storms might brew on the horizon, but together they would walk, together they would work and make progress toward their new home. It's a great, great picture of us. We're we're not Israel. Israel's not the church. But devotionally speaking, just seeing here the individual level, the family level, and then the spiritual family of faith level that, hey, we're working together. We're experiencing these things together. We're able to enjoy the call of God together while also making progress as individuals and families as we follow after the Lord. Verse 22, he gave each of the brothers changes of clothes, but he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. We remember that the brothers, 10 of them, had stolen and ruined Joseph's beautiful coat of many colors. And then they beat him, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. 
And now what's happening? Joseph gives them each new robes of their own. Remember, Joseph had been given a royal robe when he came out of the dungeon, right? When he came out of that prison, Pharaoh said, get that prisoner garb off him. Let's give him a royal robe. And now he gives, Joseph gives those sorts of robes to his brothers. Not only is this a beautiful depiction of God's generous grace, how Jesus, who was stripped naked, beaten, crucified, and then raised in glory, offers us his robe of righteousness... We also can see the tender heart of God and how he is paying attention to what's going on in the here and now of our experience. You see, when the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack in the last passage, what did the brothers all do? They all tore their robes. They ripped their clothes apart. And there they are in the presence of this forgiving prince. And they're guilty and they're broken and they're disheveled and their clothes are all ruined. And what does Joseph say? He says, I forgive you. I am here to give you a hope and a future. Let's take off those ruined robes and instead put on royal robes that I'm going to give you freely. Scholars tell us that these were probably the kind of clothes that were used for festive occasions, not just regular old dungarees, right? These were the dress wranglers that you're going to wear to the valley wedding, right? Does anybody wear wranglers anymore? No? God bless you. I see those hands. Very good. So... So you know what I mean? They're dress jeans. Like, so, no. So, but these were, these were clothes, robes that were royal, that were given for festive occasions. Joseph here is not only providing for their very real need. They needed clothes. They tore all their clothes. He's not only providing for their need. He is telling them, guess what? The time for mourning is over. It's all done. Your guilt is gone. It's all forgiven. And the time for celebrating is now. And, and in Zechariah 3, we see something really wonderful. The angel of the Lord speaks and he says of Joshua, the high priest, he says, take off his filthy clothes. I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. That's what the Lord wants to do. Clothe us, clothe us with, his, with his robe of righteousness, which is for, for joy and rejoicing and for spiritual festivity. What about the extras given to Benjamin? Some commentators say Joseph is lapsing into the kind of favoritism that got his dad into all that trouble so many times over. Maybe. On the other hand, Benjamin had the largest family of all the brothers. Did you know that? I never think about that. But in the next chapter, it's going to list out all the family members of all the brothers. And Benjamin has 10 sons. The next closest brother has seven sons, but most of them have four or five sons or even less. So Benjamin has the biggest family. But Benjamin's gift and the fact that it was outsized reveals something about the brothers and something about the Lord, I think, as well. The brothers, who had been so jealous before because their little brother Joseph got something they didn't get, they're not jealous anymore. They don't care at all that Benjamin gets this gift. No grumbling, no, no conniving, no scheming, no ripping his robe off, anything like that. And you know, jealousy shouldn't bother us as God's people either. Now, the truth is, and this is the, the something that we learn about the Lord, or at least is pictured here in a scale model sense, the truth is, God is not always equal in his distribution of grace when it comes to physical circumstances. 
His, his grace is always equal when it comes to spiritual promises and, and uh, eternal, eternal grace, that, that kind of thing. But when we talk about physical circumstances, it's just the truth that it's not equal for everyone. Listen, 4% of children, one out of every 25 children in the world will not make it to their fifth birthday. They just won't. That's the number. That's not fair. That's not equal. One out of every 10 people on planet Earth tonight is going to go to bed hungry. Those circumstances are not equal to yours and mine. They just aren't. So God's spiritual grace, God's eternal promises are equal. There's nothing lopsided about it. There's not a special salvation for a person over here and a different level of salvation for someone else. But the physical uh, uh, circumstances of grace, the physical gifts and allowances that God, uh, you know, gives to different people, is that fair? What would be fair for the brothers? For the 10 brothers of Joseph, fair, if we want to get right down to it, fair would have been they get impaled on a stick in, in front of Joseph's palace. That's fair, right? Because that's what they deserved. We look at their story. We see what kind of men they were. We see what they did. We see how God saved Joseph from them. And we would have said, what did they deserve to get? Well, they deserved death for what they had done. Now, if we look at their experience, then, okay, are you getting death? No, I'm not getting death. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting life, and I'm getting forgiveness, and I'm getting reconciliation. I'm getting my guilt taken away. I'm getting joy. I'm getting peace. I'm getting provision. I'm giving a place in this kingdom. Okay, man, we are way over into the positive side of fair, right? So then when you say, okay, and the guy next to you gets five changes of clothes instead of two, you get two changes of clothes. Yeah, okay, that's no problem. I don't know, maybe I want to get impaled on a stick instead because I want, I want it to be fair. So what they deserved was execution. So listen, God gives us access to heaven. He has given us spiritual gifts to each and every one of us. He gives us joy and peace equally to everyone. He brings, at least the offer is equal to all of his people. He brings us into his family. He brings us into his inheritance. He, He rewards us for the things that he accomplishes in our lives. So now knowing all of that and all the other things that he gives to his people equally in the spiritual realm, we have no reason to complain that, well, someone else has it physically better than me. Their physical circumstances are more palatable or more enviable in my eyes. We have no reason to complain about those things, especially when we have it far physically better than almost all the people who have ever lived in any place or any generation on planet Earth. So do we have struggles? Yes. Does God care about them? Yes. Should we care about feeding hungry people? Yes, we shouldn't say, yeah, well, some people are hungry, some people aren't hungry, it's not really our problem. No, that's not what I'm saying at all, of course. But when we see what looks like lopsided grace in physical circumstances, we can continue to trust God, we can continue to be thankful and use what we have to be generous the way that God is generous to us, and we can take into our hearts, that message that Paul gave us where he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content so that we are not bothered by jealousy. We're not driven down by envy. We are rooting those things out of our lives, realizing that I am a, a, 
rich inheritor of God's grace. And circumstances are not always what I want them to be, or the person across the street seems to have it better. They have more money. They have more comfort. They have better health. They have these things. We need to let go of those kinds of physical comparisons and realize that what God has given us on the spiritual level and in our eternal future, no complaint or no difficulty or no suffering in the here and now can be compared can be balanced against what we're going to get in the future. Verse 23, he sent his father the following 10 donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt, 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his father on the journey. They brought the best of their land, Canaan. Remember, Jacob had said, bring some of the best of the land. They brought the best of their land to Canaan only to have even more of the best given back to them. And it speaks to us of God's generosity towards us and the fact that you cannot outgive God. Luke 6, 38, here's what Jesus said. Given it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Listen, God does not need you to give to him or to his work. You need to give to God's work. When, when the brothers came, they brought 10 donkeys, 10 donkeys they were super worried about, right? As we recall from a couple passages ago. And now what are they coming back with? 30 donkeys, all laden with all of these gifts from the king, plus wagons, plus supplies for their round trip, plus a land grant, plus silver, plus, 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 plus. And this is what the Lord does for us. When we give to his work, he's like, let me show you what generosity is. Let me show you what, what, what kind of a God I am. Verse 24 says, so Joseph sent his brothers on their way. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't argue on the way. <laughs> I love that. What a great real moment. Uh, any of you who have uh, brothers probably understand exactly what's going on here. Scholars actually debate about what Joseph meant, what his phrasing was, because the root word is only used this one time. It can have a variety of meanings. A bunch of smart guys have figured these things out. The meanings aren't mutually exclusive. It can mean a variety of things. One of the things it can mean is what we read. Don't argue or quarrel on the way. Don't get into a fight over who should have done what and when they should have done it, right? All has been made new. All has been forgiven. God has brought beauty from the ashes of their mistakes, so don't fight about it. Or it can mean, don't be afraid or anxious as you go. Yes, storms or robbers or potholes or complications might still cross their path, but don't focus on those things. Don't worry about them. This phrase might mean, don't have second thoughts about following through on this plan. Stay the course. See it through to the end. It can mean stay calm and be peaceful. Don't worry that Joseph might turn against you. Now, this is one we're going to see that they were worried about. Once Jacob dies, they say, we're worried that Joseph is going to turn on us and then it's all going to come crashing down. And so it might mean that he's saying, hey, don't worry. I'm going to see this through to the end. One linguist says that the word for argue here is just the antonym for the word peace. So he's saying, do not not be at peace. Don't, don't give in to these temptations to fight, to be anxious, to worry, to doubt. All of these angles speak to us of the commands and the encouragements that we're given as children of God living the Christian life. Don't be afraid. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't let the cares of this world shake you out of peace 
or out of pace with the Lord. Follow through, receive what God wants to give. Don't doubt that he's gonna turn on you and cast you aside one day. Be at peace. Verse 25, so they went up from Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. After more than 20 years, the brothers would have to finally admit what they did to Joseph. Remember that time we told you one of your sons was eaten by an animal? Funny thing, funny story, we actually sold him into slavery. We human trafficked him into Egypt. Good name, but don't worry, you know, this is a conversation they actually had to have. And then they would have to say, but wait, dad, there's more. It's like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. Do you believe the infomercial when they say this product worked, but wait, there's more? So they say, hey, we lied to you for the last 20 years. This is what we did to our brother, but wait, there's more. We get to move to Egypt and become like, have the best of the land of Egypt. Why would Jacob believe them when they had spent so many years lying? Why would he believe them? The stakes of their return to Egypt. They needed to return to Egypt. The stakes make us wonder why Joseph didn't just go with his brothers. You know, when Jacob dies and it's time to bury him, Joseph goes. He takes the trip to Canaan. Not only Joseph, but all the elders of Egypt go. But not here when it's way more important. And it would have been way more effective to say Joseph is just going to show up and be like, what's up, I'm here, burr, 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 right? <laughs> that would have been pretty convincing. Why didn't he just go? Well, Jacob is the focus now, and he has to make a choice whether he's going to walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 26, they said, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. You see, it's all about belief. It's all about a walk of faith. It's all about a life of trusting the Lord in the way he's leading us. Jacob hears the message, and at first he did not believe. We're told he was stunned. Your version may say this, his heart stood still. And linguists tell us that these modern English versions still blunt the force of the original. Jacob nearly died of shock on the spot. He had a physical cardiac reaction to what he was told. Verse 27, but when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. So what brought revival? It was when these changed men humbly and honestly delivered the words of the rescuer and the king and the invitation of that king and showed a demonstration of the reality of his power and his grace. They said, here's what the man said. Here's what he's offered. Look at the wagons. Yes, we were lying, thieving killers before, but now we have been set free by the truth. And we're here to say the king has invited us to all be with him. That's the deal. The wagons here were a big deal. You couldn't just get wagons and they wouldn't have been able to steal them either. They were an innovative and rare vehicle in Egypt. They would have been pulled by teams of oxen. One ox cost as much as four months salary. 
They were the luxury vehicles only the elite could afford and not the kind of thing that they would just give to travelers who were going back to Canaan. And so when the brothers share the message and the invitation, they could then turn and point and say, look at what the king has given us. Look at what he has provided. And in that moment, Jacob would see the message is real. Look at what has happened and look at how my son's lives have been changed and been provided for this is real. And so that brought revival to Jacob's heart. Verse 28, then Israel said, enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go to see him before I die. Jacob didn't see Joseph yet, but he trusted in the news and in the testimony of his other sons. And he said, I'm convinced, let's go. And this is a big move. This is not a small thing. He was going to spend the rest of his life going down to Egypt and living there with the rescuer. Did you notice a little change there? It says, then Israel said, Gordon Wenham, great Bible commentator, points out that Jacob turns to Israel when his spiritual strength returns. When Jacob walks in strength or in faith, he is Israel. It's a nice little touch that Moses gives us there. What a beautiful model of the Christian life. The king and the prince have invited us to come and be a part of their kingdom. They have provided all we need for the journey. They trust us to share the invitation with others. They have enriched our lives beyond what we could ever ask or imagine or deserve. They have wiped out our guilt, forgiven our transgressions. And now we have the chance to take the trip to walk by faith with our family of faith, trusting our Lord and being used by him to demonstrate the power and the grace and the provision that he makes available to anyone who will believe. And some people around us will believe when they look at our changed lives and when they see in us a true demonstration of the realities of God's grace and his generous mercy. When they look at our lives and they see the wagons of heaven, look at that grace, look at that mercy, look at that provision, look at that peace, look at what God has provided And then we are able to say, yeah, why don't you come with us and be a part of the thing too, knowing that there is a hope and a home and a future waiting for us.